good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I know I got to meet a few of you, so thank you so much for having me. Uh, as, uh, as Pastor Michael said, my name is Elliot. I am on staff at West Hills. And to share a little bit more about myself, I, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin. I came to faith in Jesus while I was in high school. And uh, pretty soon after that, I felt a, a calling on my life to go into ministry. And so that took me to Louisville, Kentucky, where I attended Southern Seminary. And that's where I met Alex, and I asked her to marry me. And then in the spring of 2020, everything shut down, and uh, in the course of about two months, my wife and I got married. I graduated, and we moved to California, two months. So as you can imagine, it was a bit of a whirlwind, but God was so faithful through that. Um, And uh, ever since, I've been serving as the director of student ministries, the youth pastor at West Hills Community Church. So I'll be uh, preaching this morning from Luke chapter 2, Um, But before we turn there, would you pray uh, one more time with me before we continue? Father, Lord, I know that December is a, a busy month for all of us, Lord. It's a joyful month for many of us. And for some of us, Lord, it's it's a month that's mingled with perhaps grief and pain. But God, the great thing about you, Lord, is that you invite us to come to you. As we are, Lord, perhaps especially when we're feeling particularly burdened, God, because you care for us. So, Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would meet us where we are at, God, whether we are feeling joyful and full of energy, God, or if we're just feeling a little bit defeated and tired, I pray that you would minister grace to us this morning through your word, Father. God, I pray that uh, you would be with me, Lord, as I'm speaking. I pray I would say nothing that doesn't come from your word, God, but that everything I say, Lord, would be pleasing in your sight, God, and would be in accord with your scriptures. And God, I pray that you would just remind us this Christmas season of this incredible gift we have of your son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh to rescue us. Father, be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you happen to grow up attending church, was there one worship song that sort of characterized your teenage years? So like one song that just kind of like, man, that is my youth ministry experience. Okay, got a few. I can tell you what it was for me. For, for my generation, it was the song, How He Loves. But in that song, there's one particular line that makes it perhaps one of the most infamous and polarizing worship songs of all time. If you know the song, you probably already know where I'm going. The line is, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. <laughs> that's, that's the line in question. And Pretty soon after it came out, it was so divisive that another band released a cover and they changed it to Unforeseen Kiss. Heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. And then everybody just took sides over which version they liked more, which they thought was more faithful. And uh, if you want to, you can ask me later which version I like the best. But if nothing else, I'm grateful that everyone agrees on the first three words of that song, of that line rather, heaven meets earth. What does that mean? What does it mean that heaven meets earth? Or perhaps, when did heaven meet earth? The answer is, heaven met earth at the birth of Jesus. Heaven met earth at the birth of Jesus. If you haven't yet, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 2. While you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of context to bring us up to where we are this morning. This book begins with the angel Gabriel, and he appears to this priest named Zechariah, and he promises to Zechariah that his, his wife Elizabeth in old age is going, to, is going to bear a child, and that child will be John the Baptist. He will prepare the way for God's Messiah. 
And then Gabriel appears to Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, a teenage girl living in Nazareth. And Mary is a virgin. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph. But the angel tells her she is going to miraculously conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that child's name will be Jesus. And the angel says he will be called the Son of the Most High and his kingdom will never end. Then Mary visits Elizabeth. And even in the womb, John the Baptist recognizes the child in Mary's womb. And Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months and then returns to Nazareth. And Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. And now we arrive at the second chapter of Luke. Let's begin reading in Luke chapter two, verse one. The word of the Lord says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The year is five BC, And Caesar Augustus, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, is the emperor of Rome, and he decides that it's time for a census. And the reason why is pretty simple. He wants to make sure that everyone who should be paying taxes to Rome is paying taxes to Rome. And at this time, Israel was under Roman control, which meant that uh, everybody in Judea, all of the Israelites, they had to go back to their hometowns to be registered in the census. And that includes a certain young man named Joseph and his fiance, a certain young woman named Mary. And so they go ahead to Bethlehem. Look at verse four. It says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, a small town in the region of Galilee. And so they make the 90-mile trek south and uphill, late in her pregnancy, to the town of Bethlehem. Whenever you see artwork of Mary and Joseph on the road to Bethlehem, typically like Mary sitting side saddle on a donkey and Joseph's leading the donkey. I, I don't know if that's true. The Bible doesn't say if that happened or not. I hope for Mary's sake it did. That's a pretty long way to go in your third trimester. But they go to Bethlehem. They travel to Bethlehem. But it's important that we stop and recognize here that this census was no no accident. Caesar Augustus may have intended this census to uh, evade, stop people trying to uh, evade their taxes, but ultimately, we need to recognize that it was God who sovereignly ordained this census. And he did it to fulfill his own words spoken 750 years earlier. Micah chapter 5 prophesies that the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel, would be born in a city of David, the city of Bethlehem. Listen to this prophecy. You don't have to turn there. This is what Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because it does to me, this sounds like Jesus. In fact, it describes him to a T. And yet it was written 750 years before Jesus' birth. 
And this isn't the only prophecy we see fulfilled. If you look back at verse four, it says that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. So Joseph might not himself be royalty, but he comes from royalty. He's a descendant of King David who ruled a thousand years earlier. And why is this significant? Because just as Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, so the prophet Nathan prophesied that the Messiah would come from King David's line. I want to share this this with you. 2 Samuel 7.12, this is what the Lord says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Micah's prophecy was written about 750 years before the birth of Jesus. Nathan's prophecy was written about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. You know, it's, it's likely that some of us here aren't Christians, and, and, and if you hear, you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here, and you know, I invite you to come talk to me or talk to anyone here if you have questions about the Christian faith. But, but if that is you and you're not a Christian yet, you have to wrestle with this reality. You have to wrestle with the reality that the Bible predicts historical events in detail hundreds of years before they take place. And I've only scratched the surface. We're only going to scratch the surface. If I stayed here for the next 12 hours and we worked through the book of Luke, you would see dozens and dozens of prophecies about the Messiah that were true and fulfilled in Jesus's life. And here's my point, is is that if the Bible could be right about these minute details of Jesus's birth hundreds of years before it happened, what if the Bible is right about everything else it says too? Maybe it's right in other things. Thomas Jefferson famously took a razor to uh, the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he he literally cut out every reference to uh, the supernatural miracles, resurrection, or Jesus' divinity. He, He just cut them all out, and then this new Bible that he created, he called the Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, and it would later be called the Jefferson Bible. I imagine Thomas Jefferson would describe his approach to the Bible as a chew the meat, spit the bones kind of approach. Right, Take the moral teaching, but discard the supernatural, discard the unbelievable. But here's the problem. There are no bones in the Bible. It's all meat. Either it's all true or none of it is true. And if it's all true, then, when, then what Paul says in 2 Timothy is true. All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible may offend you. In fact, I count on it. It will. (laughs) It will challenge you. It will require you to give up things that that you don't want to give up. And it will heal you. It will restore you. It will transform you, not into what you think you want to be, but into something better, what God wants you to be, what your creator wants you to be. We must saturate ourselves in the word of God, because if it's right about who Jesus is, then it's right about who we are. It's right that we desperately need a savior to pay for our sins. Let's go back to the story. In fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, Joseph and Mary, they travel to Bethlehem. Look now at verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
So Bethlehem is packed, probably because of the census. And when the time came for Mary to give birth, there was no room in the inn. But when you imagine this inn, don't, don't think of a hotel. Probably wasn't anything resembling a hotel. It was more sort of what, what's called a, can, uh, a caravansary. Uh, the closest, best way to explain it would probably be like, a, like an ancient RV park where travelers would lodge as they're, they're going from place to place. But there's no room, and so they find the next best thing they can find, and that is a stable. They find a stable. We know that because there's a manger in the stable. And there, Mary gives birth to her son, Jesus. And she feels all the same pain that, that Eve felt when Eve gave birth to her first son. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, everything was thrown under the curse. Work became difficult, and childbearing became painful. But through Mary's pain and tears in that stable, she gave birth to the baby boy who would end that curse once and for all. Because as we'll see, this is no ordinary baby boy. This is the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. And where is he laid? Notice that he's laid in a manger. That is a trough that animals would eat out of. Who, who is this God? Who is this God that he would choose to be born in such a humble and lowly place as a manger? We'll come back to that question. The sun sets on Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the stable, but not far away there are some shepherds, and they are tending their flocks by night. They're about to witness something that they will not soon forget. Let's keep reading in verse 8. It says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I want to ask the most obvious question up front. Why on earth does this angel appear to a bunch of random, unnamed shepherds? Why does he appear to them? You see, shepherds in Jewish society at the time, not only were they considered unclean, they were also considered to be dishonest as well. Like if your kid was playing with a shepherd's kid, you'd call him home early for dinner, right? Like you didn't, you didn't want your kid playing with a shepherd's kid. But Jesus, just as he was born in a lowly place, so the angel appears to lowly people. Are you picking up on a theme here? Jesus is born in a lowly place. The angel appears to lowly people. What if Jesus was born in a manger? What if this angel appeared to lowly shepherds because Jesus came to save lowly people? Because he came to save lowly, broken, messed up, sinful people like you and like me. Just a few chapters later in Luke 5, Jesus will call Levi, a hated tax collector, to be his disciple. And, and while Jesus is eating dinner at Levi's home, the Pharisees, the religious experts of the day, like they just can't handle it. They can't handle that Jesus would eat with sinners. And so they say to him, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And what does Jesus say back? He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, but I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, over and over again in the Bible, 
The people in the greatest spiritual peril are the people who think they have it all together. The people in the greatest spiritual danger are the people who think that they're righteous, who think that they're doing okay. And over and over and over again in the Bible, the people who actually receive mercy and forgiveness are the ones who know that they have nothing together, that they are messed up, that they so need grace, and then they throw themselves on God's grace. Those are the people who end up receiving mercy and forgiveness in the Bible. You know, one of the most impactful books I've read in the last couple of years is Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Perhaps some of you have read it. I want to share an illustration that he shares in that book to explain how Christ could be so drawn to sinners like us. He says, imagine a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. Jesus is not repelled by your sinfulness and your inadequacy. He's actually drawn to it. He's drawn to it in the same way a doctor is drawn to the sick and to the wounded. It's the whole reason he came. So what's holding you back from coming to him? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. That question is for you. What, what holds you back from going to Jesus, from receiving the grace and mercy he came to offer you through the cross? Following Jesus is not easy, but it's pretty simple. You repent of your sin, you turn from your sin, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is it. Or maybe you are a Christian, but something's been pulling you away from God lately. Something's been distracting you from him. And if that describes you, what's holding you back from throwing yourself on God's mercy, from being healed by him? Let's go back to the shepherds. They're watching over their sheep on a perfectly ordinary night when all of a sudden, an angel appears. Try to imagine this. So, so these shepherds, they're, they're watching over their sheep. It's night out. And all of a sudden, this brilliant light engulfs them. They're blinded as this angel appears before them. I imagine they're, they're probably like falling on the ground in fright and in shock. Their sheep are probably running away. There's no way those sheep were sticking around to see what that was. And see what the angel says. The angel says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The news this angel brings is good news. That word good news there, it's the same word from which we get gospel. Good news, gospel. And the angel says that this good news, this gospel is not for some people. It's not for most people. No, it is for all people. This gospel is for all people. It's for shepherds and tax collectors. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for pastors, kids, and drug dealers. 
It's for single mothers and immigrants. This gospel is for all people. This good news, this gospel came in the form of a person, a baby boy named Jesus. Look at verse 11. The angel tells us who Jesus is in three words. I want want to zoom in on these three words because I think they paint such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. First, the angel says that Jesus is a savior. He's a savior. Quite simply, what is a savior? It's, It's someone who saves. It's someone who saves people. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn. He came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue us from our sin. Second, Jesus is the Christ. This Christ, it means anointed one. It's synonymous with the word Messiah we see in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, typically there are only three kinds of people who would receive anointing. Prophets, priests, and kings. Those are the three groups of people who would be anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. And so when it says here that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, what we should think is that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all three of those offices. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He reveals to us the will of God. He calls us back to being faithful to him. He's the perfect priest. He offered himself up as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. And he's the perfect king. He rules with justice and equity. He brings order and peace. This is what it means that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed Messiah, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. But the angel uses one more word to describe Jesus, Lord. Not only is Jesus Savior, not only is Jesus the Christ, Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord, the Son of God. One with God the Father, one with God the Spirit. There is no higher authority in heaven and earth. He is the Lord of both. And so you may have perhaps committed some terrible sins in your life. You may have done some things that, at least in your mind, have convinced you that you are beyond salvation. There's no one who can reach as far as you have gone in your sin and depravity. Quite simply, you're wrong. There is one who is qualified to save you, and his name is Jesus, and he is a savior, he is the Christ, and he is Lord. He can save you. This angel makes this groundbreaking announcement to these lowly shepherds, and then he invites them to go find this child, to go see him in Bethlehem. But before the angel leaves, something absolutely incredible happens. Look at verse 13. It says, And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But think about this. Before our fall into sin, we had a perfect relationship with God. God walked in the garden with us. And in a very real sense, heaven was open to earth. But then we chose disobedience, didn't we? We chose rebellion. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. An angel with a flaming sword was placed at the entrance because when our sin separated us from God, it also separated heaven from earth. 
It was a dual separation. And throughout the Old Testament, there were these hints, these little hints, these glimpses that one day heaven would open up again. We see that through some of the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha. All these men, they saw heaven opened up in these incredible visions, but the only problem is these things were, these visions, they were, they were very rare. These hardly ever happened. And they only happened to very specific people, usually prophets that were called by God, set apart by him for his service. And now here, in Luke 2, we have the host of heaven appearing. We have heaven opening up to a bunch of dirty, lowly shepherds. What is going on here? What is, what is happening? Like, like, not only just one angel, but, but a host of them. Any single one of those angels would be enough to reduce the bravest man to cowering in fear. And these shepherds are witnessing thousands upon thousands of them. What is happening here? What on earth is going on? And the answer is quite simple. Heaven is opening up. Heaven is opening up. What was once closed off and invisible to sinful human eyes is now showing itself. It's opening itself up to show just how important and monumental the birth of Jesus is. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord has been born, and heaven opens up in celebration. Heaven met earth at the birth of Jesus. The barrier between the two worlds evaporated. Lowly shepherds beheld the hosts of heaven. Thomas Goodwin, the 17th century Puritan preacher, once said that that when the sun became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. So perhaps the kiss lyric isn't as bad as we thought. (laughs) I'll leave that to you to decide. But this won't be the last time heaven is opened either. Heaven will be opened again when Jesus is baptized, Luke 3.21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Heaven will open again after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, before Stephen is, is stoned to death. Acts 7.55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And finally, heaven will be opened when Jesus returns to judge the earth. Revelation 7.11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the fall was the separation of heaven from earth. The fall was the separation of heaven from earth. The incarnation was the invasion of heaven into earth, and Jesus' second coming will usher in the union of heaven and earth forever. When that day comes, the wall between heaven and earth will be be broken down and destroyed forever. We will worship God alongside the angels. And we will worship God and we will enjoy him on this physical earth, cleansed from the effects of sin and the curse so that it'll never again be touched by sin. It'll never again be touched by, by suffering, by sickness, by death. 
If you're interested in this topic, I, I highly recommend the Christian author Randy Alcorn to you. In his book, he shows how this Hollywood depiction of heaven as you know, floating through clouds and playing harps with like little, little wings, he shows how that, that vision of heaven couldn't be further from the truth of what the Bible says. Only human beings could possibly imagine like an eternity that boring. God has something so much better in mind. And that's because he doesn't destroy, he restores. And he's going to restore this earth. Heaven and earth are going to become one. And then, for the rest of our lives, to quote John Piper's tweak to the Westminster Catechism, we will enjoy, we will glorify God by enjoying him forever. That will be our eternity, glorifying God by enjoying him forever on this remade earth. You see, this night in Bethlehem is just a foretaste of what's to come. And it all begins with the birth of Jesus. So how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this this incredible gift of the incarnation? Well, first, I think we should respond with awe and wonder. Like, who is this God who would leave his throne in heaven to bring heaven down to us, us? But just like the angels, may our awe and wonder lead us to praise and worship. Even though they're invisible to us now, may we day by day, Sunday morning by Sunday morning, join with the angels in singing the praises of our Christ, of our Savior, of our King Jesus. Let's look down at verse 14. I want to zoom in for a moment on what the angels say. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God. What is, what is glory? It's a, it's a big word. We don't use it very often, typically. One theologian describes glory as the magnificence, worth, 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 loveliness, and grandeur of God's many perfections. God's glory is the, the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. And in that sense, what could be more glorious, what could be more magnificent than, than God becoming man? But also... What could better display the glory of God than God becoming man? What could better display God's glory than God becoming man? Let me explain what I mean. So some of you here probably really enjoy spicy food. You just can't get enough of it. Uh, and you're probably aware that peppers are rated on a scale called the Scoville heat unit. Um, it measures how spicy peppers are. A banana pepper is about 500 Scoville units, while a Carolina Reaper pepper is about 1.5 million Scoville units. But here's the thing. I can't handle spicy food. I'm, I'm a total wimp for spicy food, okay? I, I just can't. And once I get to a jalapeno, which is about like 5,000 units on the Scoville unit, like anything past that, it's just really, really spicy. I can't even process how spicy it is. I, I just, I'm, I'm incapable of it. It exceeds my scale, my capacity for spiciness. We can't process how glorious God is. We can't. We can't process how glorious God is. In our finitude as human beings, we just don't have a scale big enough to measure his glory. At least we didn't until Jesus took on flesh. Because in the incarnation, every one of God's perfect attributes exuded perfectly from Jesus and was put on display in a way that you and I could understand. God's love, his justice, his compassion, his authority, all of his attributes 
They were all emanating from a roughly five-foot-five, olive-skinned, Middle Eastern man named Jesus. We beheld glory in human form. You know, it's one thing to know that God is merciful because he says so as he passes over Moses on Mount Sinai. That's one thing. But it's another thing to know that Jesus is merciful when you see him weep beside the tomb, when you see him moved with compassion for prostitutes, for lepers, for sinners and sufferers. The angels declare glory to God in the highest because Jesus took on flesh to save the lowest, you and I. And what do they say next? They say, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, it's fascinating that the angels proclaim peace at the birth of Jesus because when Jesus is resurrected from the grave in the final chapter of Luke, guess what the first thing he says to his disciples is? Peace to you. At the beginning of Jesus' life and at the beginning of his second life, his resurrected life, if you will, it, it all starts with peace. What a sweet word, peace. What comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? I imagine peace as an invincible contentment. Like fears and anxieties, they just, they just melt away in the presence of this kind of peace. And if we're honest, we can all recognize the last few years have been far from peaceful, haven't they? Our world right now is far from peaceful, but in Christ Jesus, we are offered his peace. We're not given some off-brand peace. No, we get the name brand, Jesus Christ peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. Jesus purchased our peace on the cross. He purchased a peace for us, the kind of peace that, that is untouchable, the kind of peace that all the powers of death and hell combined can't put a scrape on. That's the peace we have in Jesus Christ. It's a peace that'll carry you through dark nights of the soul. It's a peace that will surpass all understanding. And it's a peace that one day will be yours for every second of every day, for all of eternity. It's our inheritance. Let's keep reading in verse 15. <clears throat> when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So the shepherds go into town with haste. They leave their sheep behind. They find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the stable, and they, they tell them everything they've just seen and heard. They tell them about how this baby boy is Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, you know, this must have been a very interesting little party because you've got, you've got Mary and Joseph and Jesus, maybe some other women who helped with the delivery, hanging out in the stable. And all of a sudden, this band of dirty shepherds just charges in and they're just like stumbling over their words trying to explain this glorious vision they just beheld. Everyone's just in awe at what's happened. And then in verse 19, it says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
You know, a, a lot of churches and Christians right now are kind of poking fun at the song, Mary, Did You Know? Because it's like, okay, well, Mary did know a lot. <laughs> she did. I mean, if we read our Bibles and what Mary knew, the angel revealed a lot to Mary about who Jesus would be and become. And so in that sense, okay, yeah, we can, we can poke a little bit of fun at the song, Mary, Did You Know? Perhaps it's not 100% biblically accurate in that sense. But at the same time, there was a lot that Mary didn't know. There was a lot she didn't know about this baby boy in her arms who would grow up to be the man who would save us from our sins. There was plenty, plenty of blanks that had yet to be filled in. So Mary treasures up and ponders all these things in her heart. She, she thinks about these things. She wonders about them. Mary treasures up and ponders the angel Gabriel's words to her. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. She treasures up and ponders the Holy Spirit's words to her through her cousin Elizabeth. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she treasures up and ponders the angel's words to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and she doesn't exactly know how this is all going to fit together. She doesn't exactly know what all these things mean. But she's treasuring these things up and she's pondering them in her heart. She's locking them away. She's thinking about them, meditating on them, dwelling on them often. Do you treasure Christ in your heart? Do you treasure up and ponder on Christ in your heart? Do you think with him, think about him with wonder and awe as you consider his life, his perfect life and his, his atoning death and his miraculous resurrection on your behalf? Because Christian, this is how we grow. We grow as we see and behold Jesus day by day. We grow as we treasure up and ponder this infinite son of Jesus Christ in our hearts. That is how we grow day by day, treasuring up and pondering Christ in prayer in his word, and among his people, as we are right now. Let's see how our passage ends in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds go back to their sheep. They glorify God as they go, and, and then they wait. They wait, because for the next 30 years, Jesus is going to be growing up. He's going to be learning how to walk and talk He's going to be outside playing with his friends. He's going to learn how to make tables and chairs out of wood. He's going to wait patiently for his ministry. But then he'll start his ministry. He'll be baptized. The Holy Spirit will descend on him, and he'll start healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and dishing out forgiveness to the most unlikely recipients. And he'll be crucified for it. He'll be killed but he won't stay dead. He'll be resurrected from the dead. He'll appear to many. He'll rise up. He'll ascend to the right hand of the Father where he now, today, at this very moment, sits waiting patiently to return. Who is this God who would come to earth to be born in a manger? Who is this God who would leave heaven to bring heaven down to us? Who is this God who will one day return to make all things new again. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And he is the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you alone are worthy to be praised.
Who are you, God, that you would leave the delight of heaven to take on flesh to save sinful man? God, how can we respond except to wonder at your great love for us, Lord, to treasure these things up in our hearts and to praise you, to say to you, glory to God in the highest because you came to rescue the lowest. God, I pray that this Christmas season, amidst all the busyness, Lord, amidst all of the perhaps family drama or complications, God, I I pray, Lord, that we would keep our focus firmly situated on the incarnation, on this good news that you came to rescue us because Jesus, because you came for us, we know that everything's gonna be okay. This world and all of its sin and all of its suffering is gonna pass away in place of a new one. And we're going to get to glorify you by enjoying you forever. And Lord, oh, we so look forward to that day. And so until then, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to ponder up and treasure these things in our heart. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't think about your birth just once a year, one month out of the year, but Lord, that we would just regularly be pondering who you are, your great love and mercy for us, God. And I pray that as we treasure these things up in our heart, I pray you would just continue to transform us, transform us from one degree of glory to the next, transform us more and more into the image of your son. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.